When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So many modern art forms are dealing with that notion that we're living in game spaces. Maybe our being isn't there, but our personality is out there. We're doing work out there. People fall in love on the internet. Yeah. There's so many works now that are like responding to that yeah. way in which our yeah. in which our our self is kind of partially out there. From Brandeis University. Welcome to Recall This Book. And today we actually travel from Brandeis, a few miles east to Harvard, to feature an event that occurred at the Mahindra Humanities Center in November of last year. And the event was called On Distraction, and it is essentially a conversation between two of us who recently wrote books that are about distraction, attention, contemplation and other kind of cognitive forms in between. The event was moderated by Robin Kelsey, who is an art historian and the Dean of Arts and Humanities, and it featured Marina Van Zoylen, professor of French and Comparative Literature at Bard College and author of an excellent recent book, The Plenitude of Distraction. And I was invited uh, to join Marina on the stage because I wrote a book recently called Semi-Detached, which is also about distraction and absorption and uh, the history of ways in which people have lost their minds, partially lost their minds, uh, gazed at their navels, and then looked back up and recovered their sense of balance. It was a really enjoyable conversation, which we have edited down considerably uh, for the purposes of the podcast. So, um, the uh, uh, curtain is drawn up on Marina beginning to speak about her book on destruction. Thank you so much for coming. Um, it's an unbelievable that you're all here. I, I wouldn't get out of bed with this cold, but I'm glad you did. Um, I, first of all, I want to thank um, Robin. I want to thank Steve. I want to thank John also for writing this book. So I decided to write this book after I taught a class on promoting good idleness. And many of the students in this class confessed to me that they were on Adderall and they were on Ritalin. And they let me on to the fact that their pills um, made them feel overly focused helping them maybe get better results on their papers and their exams, but robbing them of the pleasures and intellectual enrichments of delayed gratification. They told me that they missed the open time that they thought should be associated with novels and poetry. The class turned out to be an unexpected exercise in soul searching about the connection between success, media, technology, 
and the lost art of slowness. It also reminded me, um, while I was enrolling the students for this class, it reminded me of my first really hugely traumatic experience, which happened many, many, many years ago at Harvard as a freshman, when after taking some little test the first day, I was um, told that my reading skills were particularly poor, how great for the self-esteem right away, and that I would have to enroll in Harvard's very special speed reading class. <laughs> The first morning, about a hundred of us, looking very sheepish, and none of us told our families, um, that we, we, so we sat in this huge amphitheater, it was the Science Center, and large chunks of text were projected on a giant screen. The instructions were clear. We needed to distill what we read. Um, and answer pointed questions in order to indicate that we had grasped the argument. There was an obnoxious person next to me, this woman, speed reader, who spoke so fast that I couldn't imagine for one second that she needed to take this class. And she looked at me and she said, oh, I understand that you're a Russian literature major. Well, this class is going to benefit you immensely because you will be able to read the Brothers Karamazov in a fraction of the time. I was, needless to say, horrified. Who is this person? And she came from Belgium. And I mean, I came from France, so there was already this tension between <laughs> us. You can, um, so um, this horrible experience was decades before the, the various slow movements were encouraging people to linger over their foods and their futures. We had no computers back then, remember? And we would never have dreamt of something you, I hope, never have heard of, which is Google's popular passages a program that lets you explore a book in 10 seconds, pointing <laughs> out what really is important when we read. Naturally, no literature lover could either have designed either Google program or that atrocious speed reading class, which actually never helped me in the least. So Darwin, as you will see, would have been the first objector to this kind of traumatic speed reading experience. In the stunning entry from his journal um, from May 1st, 1881, he bitterly concludes uh, that extreme focus can be dangerous, in fact, more dangerous than distraction. His extreme focus on evolution, he writes, ended up shriveling his brain, shutting out his favorite poets and musicians, and impairing for good his judgment of taste. I'm going to read you uh, a passage which is really heartbreaking and beautiful from Darwin's journal. Up to the age of 30 or beyond it, Poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure, and even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare. I have also said that formerly, pictures gave me considerable and music very great delight. I have tried lately to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also almost lost my taste for pictures or music. 
my mind, and pay attention to this because it's quite heartbreaking, my mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of fact. But why this should have caused the atrophy of that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. I, if I had to live my life again, I would have made a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once a week. Once a week, that is really pitiful, Mr. Darwin. Once an hour. <laughs> Well, he hated leaving his house. He so did, that's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> the loss of these tastes, he adds, is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character. So if losing one's train of thought is such a bad thing, then why didn't evolution fix it, providing us with a steel-like concentration? Could it be that distraction grants us actually a secret survivalist weapon? Unlike our, our primate siblings with their fierce capacity for fending off enemies, finding food, securing shelter, we are programmed for better or for worse for making light of our condition. As the great anthropologist Albert Piette, P-I-E-T-T-E, -T -T -E, he should be world famous and he's not, as Albert Piette notes, as opposed to gorillas and chimpanzees, being human means to inhabit a presence-absence mode, to practice detached attentiveness, letting the minor and major modes coexist. This minimalism, he writes, allows us never to get too deep into things, dipping as we are in activities peripheral to the situation at hand. So what can we learn from the fact that only humans can be simultaneously absent and present, detached and connected, thank you, active and passive? Is it? I think it is because we daydream, zone out, lose our thread of a conversation that we can perhaps stop ourselves from being fanatics, forget the harshest blows and move on. Many of you surely remember a comment Primo Levi made in If This Is a Man, where he suggests that the paradoxical view that divided attention might have done more good than harm in Auschwitz. Despite his unthinkable misery, Levi felt grateful that at least on one fateful day, the wind was not blowing too hard. So what do we make of the fact that only Homo sapiens is capable of the kind of existential detachment that tolerates an idea that goes nowhere, a thought that is never carried through? The upside of this is that we will endure far better than primates a weirdly constructive cognitive blurriness. 
So what if we can concentrate on our work all the time? I know we're worried about that. We're worried every time we look on our, at our telephone. We're worried every time we Google John Plotz. Oh, that's how, how I recognized you, because <laughs> I Googled you. So swaying between crucial or less crucial occurrences may well constitute strength and not weakness a very idiosyncratic type of intellectual creativity, one that feeds on divided attention and helps us balance the playful and the tragic. You all have read that neurologists experimenting on ways people solve problems note that our best chance of getting something right, getting a solution, is to indulge in downtime. As you know, Nietzsche never had an idea without perambulating. Um, he needed to walk aimlessly. He needed to daydream and to get lost in order to have that thought that was somewhere in the, in the back of his mind. Indeed, putting the riddle at rest and storing it at the back of our minds rather than focusing on it ad nauseam liberates the circuitry of thinking. Hume's wonderful formula, the storehouse of labor, recalibrates perfectly the dichotomy between work and play, attention and inattention. Thinking in a straight line, monitoring our every thought, is basically a losing battle more and more, and we know it. Our innate way of relating to our surroundings and to our own thinking patterns is non-directed. Trapped by competing sensory and intellectual stimuli, we are, and it is, essentially absent-minded. Tristram Shandy's meandering account of his birth is a case in point. The more Stern's protagonist attempts to control the intricacies of his own autobiography, the more facts keep creeping in, crowding his initial narrative until it loses its shape altogether. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Robin, for this, for this event. And thanks to, uh, to Sarah and to Steve for organizing it. And, and Marina, thank you so much. It's great. So it is a really great pleasure to be here tonight and to take part in what I look forward to being just kind of an open conversation and, and freewheeling. But I'm, like Marina, I'm going to just talk a little bit to set things up. Um, so you know, the way I would frame it is that nowadays we have uh, diagnoses like ADD or ADHD, and we have the account of sort of social media addiction or Googleitis um, <laughs> to anchor our discussion of distraction. There's a very robust tradition of understanding distraction as kind of free-range mental peregrination with, as Marina was saying, with all its vices. So yes, new, Robin, I totally agree. It is new, like we have a new version of it, but then we also want to think about how much the new version of it is akin to older versions of it. So you know, if those are recent diagnoses that medicalize or burlesque the state, but in the early days of the church, the Desert Fathers uh, um, were obsessed with acedia which uh, sort of turns into sloth or decedia in later ages as a deadly sin, but originally is 
the state of restlessness and inability either to work or to pray. So that's the original noonday demon, is the demon that distracts you. Um, and, um, you know, later on here in the shadow of William James Hall, it seems appropriate to recall a line from his 1890 Principles of Psychology, which actually I have to admit that I got, not from Wikipedia, but from Joshua Cohen's new book called Attention. <laughs> Um, but he, maybe he got it from Wikipedia, it's totally possible. Um, attention is the taking possession of the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what seems several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought. It implies withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with others and is a condition which has a real opposite in the confused, dazed, scatterbrained state which in French is called, and I will just say it in English, distraction. Um, however, um, you know, so there is this account of attention, good, distraction, bad, and clearly both of us here are, you know, standing in front of you to discuss ways, other ways maybe to think about distraction. And I think nece not necessarily to praise it, I really don't want my teenagers to see on Twitter that I'm in favor of distraction, <laughs> but um, at least not to bury it. So um, I thought the best way to kick this off is um, to take about 15 or maybe 20 minutes to present the argument of my book, uh, Semi-Detached. And you know, Marina, in terms of the amazing lapidary concision of your book, I, I, I feel like about my book, that uh, there's a, I think it's a Samuel Johnson line, I wrote a long letter because I did not have time to write a short one. Yeah. So I think you, you went ahead and wrote the short one, but <laughs> I kind of wrote the, wrote the, the long one. And um, it is uh, about this idea of semi-detachment. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about that. When you half lose yourself in a work of art, what happens to the half that is left behind? The critical vocabulary to describe that sensation is lacking, but it's a familiar feeling nonetheless. When most carried away, audiences of even the most compelling artwork remain somewhat aware of their actual situation. Ideas about this kind of semi-detachment play a crucial and I think an underexplored role in shaping a wide range of modern artwork. So the argument of the book is, yes, this is a kind of phenomenological account of this feeling, but I'm gonna but what I want to show is that there's a lot of artworks that are that where the artist must be thinking about this. I mean, this is an intentionalist account. So um, you know, Marina, you you very rightly pointed to a key attribute of how we think about distraction, which is that the reader should be free to pick up what they want to pick. That's a kind of Roland Barthes account in Pleasures of the Text, that you know the text may be there because the author put it there, but I, the reader, can take up or put down what I want. And, and I agree with that as an important way of thinking about what the conscious state in front of a work of art is, as it is in front of the world. But my argument is that these are artworks, the artworks I want to talk about are ones where in the inception of the artwork, you already see that the person making the art must have understood that kind of doubleness as part of it. Like that isn't just a readerly response that could be arbitrary, could be to anything, but is also a response to something that's really, show, you can show it to be present in the contours of the artwork itself. So I'm saying that this is 
modern, and for me it's really the last couple of hundred years that I'm interested in, but it is definitely there earlier. In George Eliot's The Mill and the Floss, in the, the first chapter moves from an account of the young heroine, Maggie Tulliver, you may remember, at play to a description of the benumbed arms of the narrator who has been watching her. It is time the little playfellow, so the narrator is speaking to us. It is time the little playfellow went in, I think, and there's a very bright fire to tempt her. The red light shines out from under the deepening gray of the sky. It is time, too, for me to leave off, resting my arms on the cold stone of this bridge. Ellipsis, Eliot's ellipsis, not mine. Ah, my arms are really benumbed. I've been pressing my elbows on the arms of my chair, like this kind of chair, and dreaming that I was standing on the bridge in front of Dorcut Mill as it looked one February afternoon many years ago. So Eliot has an image of a doubled elbow wrist, rest here, the bridge and the chair arm both. And I think that offers a way to think about the reading of the novel itself. Not only am I here reading, I'm also there absorbed into their world. The narrator turns into a simulacrum of the reader whose dreamlike entry into Maggie's world is bodied forth in that ellipsis mark discovery that the arms have been pressing onto the bridge and the armchair simultaneously. So one April morning, not very far from here, biking over the Mass Pike, listening to my iPod back when there were iPods, with traffic noise in one ear and the Carter family in the other, I suddenly came to think about that moment in James as a fact of life, not just of art. Um, holding two things in my head at once, Cabin in the Pines and also the broken glass that I'd have to dodge at the end of the footbridge, suddenly struck me less as a quirk of George Eliot's armchair doubling or, or uh, yeah, elbow doubling, and more as a record of something that had been happening to me all my life, only happening in this evanescent and unsatisfactory way, happening and then vanishing again because I lack the vocabulary to make sense of it, to give it a name and some attributes and in that kind of scholarly way to try to historicize it. So the title of Sherry Turkle's Jeremiah, a wonderful Jeremiah, but Jeremiah, about teenagers' over-networked lives alone together began to strike me less as an indictment of our present social condition then as a description of our perennial residence in a state of mental quasi-abstraction. So I biked straight off that bridge and into the library, in fact, Widener Library, and sometimes it seems that I have not left since. <laughs> so just because it took me until the 2010s to have this realization did not mean, of course, that other people hadn't been having it before me. And one of the joys for me of Marina's book is to think about the two of us discovering different genealogies of this way that this is a thing that is new now and yet also keeps on happening in earlier times. Not just under the shadow of William James, but also footsteps away from 20 Quincy Street where William and Henry lived. It was before the Harvard Faculty Club was built on the ruins of Henry's bedroom. Um, we might also give some thought to Henry, uh, to Henry James. Here he's describing the protagonist of the tragic muse. Um, uh, and it's he, he starts just he picks up distraction and twisted a different way from William. So you remember William talked about the let me get the exact words. William talked about the um, confused, dazed, scatterbrained state. But what Henry says is, 
um, at this moment when he has sort of met this fetching new person he's become interested in, there was a new infusion in his consciousness, an element in his life which altered the relations of things, a new distraction in the French sense. He could recognize that as freely as possible without being obliged to classify the agreeable resources as a new entanglement. So I take it there that an entanglement would be kind of like what William James was talking about with attention. Like an entanglement would kind of anchor you to that person. But this is the agreeable possibility of it being is a free relation. This infusion is kind of a free infusion. And by the way, you know, since both the James brothers talk about this as being French, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to look at the OED. And in fact, if you go to 1526, you know, hard it is to say one pater noster without distraction of the mind. So in fact, it's a perfectly English. I mean, it is a long-term English phrase. The, the fact that people think of it as French. I don't know, Marina, maybe you have something to say about that. They don't call it Belgian, that's for sure. But uh, um, yeah. But yeah, so it's, and you know, that, that, fifth, that 16th century usage of it, you can see there, that's a sort of an acedia problem. Like, when I pray, I find my mind slipping away. So that's really a classic distraction. Well, thank you. Um, those were wonderful introductions of, uh, of the books that you've produced. And I think it was clear that there's uh, a tremendous amount of um, possible exchange uh, between them. I think my, in my experience as a teacher is that there have definitely been changes in the way that attention is mobilized by yeah. students or not mobilized. And I had an interesting experience a few years ago when I was teaching a tutorial and we read Bachelard's The Poetics of Space and there's passages, beautiful passages, you cite uh, the book in your, your book, Marina, where they're talking about, he's talking about boredom and, and my three students could not understand what Bachelard was talking about. I mean, it literally seemed like they could not understand yeah. what this experience was. And for me, it was a moment of, oh, your, your world is quite different oh, from the one I grew up in, in which it is very easy for me to remember boredom of a kind that resembles what Bachelard describes, right? So, so partly, I'm, I'm less interested in the anxiety about loss of attention mm -hmm. than I am interested in the forms that distraction takes, the extent to which they're commodified at a much you know, accelerated rate now. I mean, I guess I'm thinking of Jonathan Crary's 24-7 kind of yeah. thing. Um, and just, you know, it's not a kind of this has never happened before, but nonetheless, just as Buster Keaton is working with audiences to get them to understand how to handle the problems of attention in the moment when film emerges, yeah. that we are kind of looking for models of how to handle the forms of attention and distraction that are available or not available yeah. to us I, now. I, I totally agree with that point. I remember the first time I saw people who do these poetic experiments using, uh, I, I think, is it called shockwave? Like flash players that you can't control, where you go onto the internet and the poem just kind of comes at you. And, um, and, I've and I think of that as an attempt to cognitively reckon with, you know, what does it mean to be immersed in this way and discover that turning on and off might seem to be easy, but it's actually not that easy. So yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah, are we worried that we have, um, that we, 
we have too much focus, really, because when we're basically, we're always looking for something, we're expecting something, we need the adrenaline, um, the, the, the high, you know, even getting some stupid text from someone we hate, it, it's still some kind of high. <laughs> you have a so, wonderful expression in your book, Pavlovian creatures of the internet. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. we are. Yeah, so I think it's not that we're, I mean, I, I, it kills me that my students are so unhappy because on one level they're on their Adderall and their Ritalin and it does help them. It makes them, you know, write maybe faster, but they're feeling the, they're mourning something that they don't quite, they don't really know what they're mourning because it's not boredom, it's something else. I'm not sure yeah. why. Can I put in a plug for, do you know this new book, My Year of Rest and Relaxation? Yeah. Most yeah. of yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I'm only halfway through now, so I may, it might turn out to be yeah. wrong. But it is, yeah. it's about somebody who cannot find that place of solitude and mm -hmm. downtime. And so she mm. medicates herself to achieve it, which obviously has all sorts of counter counterproductive results. But it is, it's this notion that you, it, it, what's the Conrad line in the destructive element immerse? Like, if you can't go out. I mean, it would be impossible to, for her to imagine just, oh, I'll go sit on a farm for a while. But maybe I can pharmacopoeize yeah. my way yeah. oh, back to okay. that state. Yeah. It's fascinating. And that's a, that is a book that seems to me to be mm -hmm. encountering, like, the new qualitative situation. Thank you both for just really rich topics. So um, as a philosopher, I'm going to ask a philosophical question. Um, so. Let's suppose distraction is a kind of good. Uh, there's a question of what kind of good is it? So there's these certain instances of I'm Hume and I'm trying to you know, bring down Descartes and so you know, going down to the pub with my friends is a nice kind of distraction so then I can come back and I can really show why he's wrong. So there, that's an instrumental view of the goodness of distraction. But then it's interesting to then think about the case of art, right? And so what has Darwin lost, or the examples, John, that you were talking about, when we are in this distracted mode, it's less clear that that just has this instrumental value. There it seems distraction is more of a, an intrinsically good state to be in. So I just want to invite you to say a little bit more about if you have thoughts about what kind of good distraction is. Is it an instrumental good? Is it an intrinsic good? Can I can yes, I take that one first? Please. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because when you were when you were talking about Darwin, I was thinking that there's another 19th century example, which I'm sure you were thinking of too, which is John John Stuart Mill yeah. has this mental breakdown yeah. and which he recuperates from by way of Coleridge, yeah. um, and the, and he really does kind of try to unpack that problem, whether what he needed was simply to be able to turn off the utilitarian brain. You know, that would be the account that, like, you know, Bentham is good, but just not all the time. You need, it, you know, you need, you need some commercials, too, or something. But he ends up coming down more on the notion that there is this other thing, which I'm not sure if he uses the word experience. I have to go back to Martin Jay's book. But I mean, I feel like the point there is that he's trying to get at something where what he, what he likes about Coleridge's poetry, as distinct from other romantic poetry, is that it fuses thought and feeling. So what Mill, by Mill's account, there is this other thing, which is that it makes you 
grapple with the difficulty of the fact that though I'm in my mind having this one thought and experience, somebody else out there is having is experiencing differently. And I can, yes, somewhat apprehend it because poetry somewhat brings me into their world, but I'm also somewhat like imagination doesn't take me all the way. So I think if I'm understanding your question right, it, I think what I'm saying is not just that imagination becomes like um, a cure-all panacea, like when we have an artistic experience, it has this great utility of just like giving, it gives us a secret passageway. It's actually more complicated than that. It's that the aesthetic experience, like looking at that, trying to catch the eye of that Caravaggio character, is at once a payoff, there's some sensual beauty, there's some apprehension, there's something you get, and there's also a sense of distance as well. So I think to me that's, do you know what I'm saying? Like the utility in a way is that it's a qualitatively different kind of utility. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Raina, do you want to weigh in on this? Because oh, you, you yeah. talk about the, that paradox in your book. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the presence-absence thing. I mean, I was mentioning briefly Nietzsche and how he would say, you know, I can only really produce these thoughts when I'm losing myself, when I'm not going in a straight line. And so, um, Again, you know, I always feel a little bit disingenuous with this whole topic because, of course, I want to, you know, have the richest, most intense philosophical life possible despite or because of the distraction. And actually, um, I mean, I, I don't know how to, how to put it, the, the presence-absence, this, this uh, anthropologist who tells us that we couldn't live if we lived simply in the mode of presence. And, and so we have to absent ourselves from depth in order to get to a, a greater depth. And, and it's, it's, it's hard to explain, but I really understand that, how, how, how sometimes you, you just, I mean, when you're talking with someone and you hear someone else's conversation and you kind of are dying to listen to that other, dichotic listening it's called, and we're all guilty of that. But it happens also, you know, when, we ch when, when we're watching, say, Breaking Bad. I don't know how many people, have, everyone has watched Breaking Bad. I never feel guilty when I'm watching Breaking Bad because I'm actually completely ensconced in a fictional world. I feel guilty when I feel that I am basically, uh, I, I'm not together. I'm, 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 I'm pressing this one button, I'm half looking at one thing. So th for the philosopher, I think the philosopher wants a certain amount of, um, lost time in order to find the time that will be the time that will allow them to write or to create. So I think it has a connection to creativity. Thank you. Uh, so I, I have two quick questions. Um, one of them is just about, um, have any of you thought about how contemporary novels try to respond to, um, to these kind of distractions, uh, especially the internet? And uh, the second question is, I guess more in your field. Um, it's about that sort of weird thing where people get accused in the 19th century of basically like falling into novels, uh, oh, being yeah. totally consumed by novels, mm -hmm. oh, you uh, and that's that really dangerous. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> so I, I just sort of 
yeah. wonder about that, especially because it kind of becomes gendered and stuff. So, yeah. John will answer your second question because he talks about that a, a, a huge amount. Um, the first question, there are many contemporary novels now that use links. So you can read them on the internet, or I mean, you can read them on your, your, your machine, or you can read them, and it's two utterly diff diff different um, experiences. There's a Paul Lafarge novel, which I forget the title of it, but it's all about you know following links, and I listened to it on Audible, so I missed it completely. And ah. then I, I, he teaches with me, and I said, I, I really liked your book, and he says, so what did you think of all the references to our distraction? And I, of course, I, I didn't get any of that, but but I, I think it's, it's definitely. Um, and, and, you know, John talks about the whole idea of free and direct discourse, which in some ways could be our pathology right now. We are free and direct discourse, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. But the second question, I think, um, the, the immersion and the danger of fiction. Right, but I also take it, that you're, Danielle, you're talking about quixotism, right? I mean, that is the way in which, you know, sort of Madame Bovary, like that, that quality of or the female quixote is an interesting 18th century example of that, where people to whom the world of books becomes like real life. I mean, I just think, mm. uh, okay, I will mention Wreck-It Ralph for the second time tonight. I mean, I think that so many modern art forms are dealing with that notion that we're living in game spaces. I mean, mm. so Wreck-It Ralph literally lives inside a game, but yeah. I think one of the reasons it works is the same reason that Ready Player One works for us, which is that we are, constantly thinking about the fact that we have avatars, we have a kind of fully developed internet-mediated you know, personality. Maybe our being isn't there, but our personality is out there. We're doing work out there. People fall in love on the internet. Yeah. And you know, so fine. So second life itself is kind of dead as an experiment, but the notion that those kind of you know, virtual, the virtual worlding, mm. that, I, I mean, I think that yeah. there's so many art works now that are like responding to that yeah. way in which our yeah. in which our our self is kind of partially out there and you know um yeah yeah, yeah. i, I it, it, just what you said reminded me of a, a really wonderful experience so i taught this uh don quixote tutorial and bard students are impossible they do theater till midnight so sometimes our tutorial was from 11 p.m to 1 a.m because those were the only times we could all find together and and i you know we were talking about madame bovary and and, and the dangers of fiction and and one of the students said to me you know um, we are Don Quixotes because we inhabit the world of virtual reality. My brothers and I had a terrible childhood. We, our parents were abusive. The only place where we actually had a life was in these games. What, what are they? I mean, games and... and uh, yeah, well, I, they're called moves. I don't that. even know the, the terminology, but it made me stop in my tracks because I'm so old-fashioned. It's just reading is the only thing. And actually, no. Um, they had this beautiful... These memories, their memories were memories of 
passing, you know, doing some dangerous things that were virtual, that were not real. Their reality was miserable. Their virtual yeah. reality was something that they could share, something they will remember. Remember when they, he, he told me, he talks to his brother about this as his childhood. So this is such an incredible thing. I was blown away by that. And it made me feel I'm so prejudiced. These kids have, you guys, the youngsters, have such rich lives compared to stodgy me. I was just We just there. had the telephone. Yeah. We just had the telephone. Yeah. <clears throat> Although, and, you, and you could ask, yeah. you could do the thought experiment if um, movies had come after mm. games would we, what would the cultural reaction to the movies be? Whereas it's just like you're being broadcast at, like you're being brought into yeah, that world yeah. and given that world. Whereas in the game space, mm -hmm. you're yeah. playing with it and interacting with it. And so, you know, maybe that would be the culturally valorized yeah. form rather but, than but the of way course, we, But of course, know. when Don Quixote, you know, sees the puppet show and he thinks they're real and he destroys them and, and, and then Orson Welles makes the Don Quixote movie, which is so great. And uh, Orson Welles makes it as Don Quixote and Sancho at the movies. And when Don Quixote sees these characters, you know, galloping on the screen, he gets up and destroys the screen, totally destroys the screen. And so, um, I don't know, do we live as intensely and is it so terrible to live? But can I just answer that question in a slightly different way though too, Danielle, which is I do think there's a ton of novels nowadays that mm. actually do bifurcate the internet persona and the lived experience. In other words, like there's a kind of old person account of like, oh, you know, 19 year olds are on Facebook all the time, therefore all they, their whole being is bound up in their social transactions and their badges and you know all these other things. And for example, Sally Rooney, I really love both conversations uh, with friends and normal people. And both of those are about the difference between what you appear like in that persona that's out there electronically versus the kind of depth that you yourself possess, which is inarticulate and struggling because it's yeah. personal and it's not yeah. personality, which is what gets played out out there. Like I think that, in other words, I think there's a probably just like in every generation, there's a range of artistic responses. And one of them is to say, well, there's that electronic space there, but then the real me is kind of hidden down yeah. here and yeah. likes to be alone. Yeah. yeah. Just take a couple more questions. Um, thank you very much for, for both your talks. Um, I have to confess that I was so uh, intrigued by the Frenchness attributed to this, this distraction, yeah. distraction, yeah. that while you were speaking, I went down an etymological um, oh. a rabbit hole on my distraction presence uh, object to look <laughs> up uh, distraction, the trésor de la langue française. Um, um, and it, and I, I learned that it has to do with separation or tearing away and I thought oh well you know distraction how does that work with extraction because extraction seems like the the function or the result of attention or the opposite of distraction if you are really attentive then you are extracting something Pulling from the object of it, yeah. which mm. is also about separation and detachment and removal so that was very kind of perturbing to me because I thought well if you're present and attentive and that puts you in a dynamic of removal or if you're distracted and that still puts you in the state of removal, is, is, the, is attachment possible? There's no there we, there. Yeah, or are we just doomed to a, to a state of either being removed from the world or always removing a part of the world from itself? 
That's a beautiful question. I, I, I'm kind of speechless because, of course, there's no answer to that. But there's a, there's a despair. There's always been a despair about it. I mean, I think I write about this in my book. I, re I read yours, but I didn't reread mine. But, I did. but Jonathan Edwards, you know, doing the, a, a real training program in order to not be distracted and how he couldn't manage to do it. I mean, it, it's like St. Augustine trying not to eat, and the less he eats, the more he's obsessed about food. The, 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 there's really a, 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 if you want this perfect attentivity, attention, you're thinking about something you desire, and you're not actually in that space of meditation. You're actually in a disembodied moment when you're focusing on the attempt. And, and I, you're, the etymology that you're presenting is incredibly compelling. And the, the only thought I have to add to that is that from what I understand about acedia in the early days of the church, that's really a form of the problem. Because the point is that the acedia comes to monks who are committed to kind of meditating and being with the divine or considering the divine. They're not doing intellectual work, they're doing work, I mean, they're doing thinking in the Arendtian sense. They're just trying to, you know, think the thinking that ravels and unravels. And the danger is that when you do that, you might attain something close to a divine, but you might, but demons come. I mean, the problem of Asidia is demons coming, and the demons are really beautiful. So the problem is that you actually have succeeded in conjuring up something, yeah. which you want to be a divine, but might be demoniac because you've sure. gone astray. And that, they, they, they couldn't get out that. And I think, as I understand it, Augustine's solution is basically concenobitism. Like, in other words, you, do, you can't be monadic as a monk. You have to be cenobitic. So he has these injunctions about going and eating meals together. Yeah. Like, that's how you solve the noonday demon, basically, <laughs> is that you have lunch. Yeah, you um, can't be alone. But, it, but, but you give something up by doing that, because you give up the possibility of extracting, yeah. you know, because, because the revelation you have might actually be a grounded revelation, but it's too dangerous because it and could be demonized. And it's ecstatic. Ecstasy is dangerous, yeah, as we all know all the time. Yeah, lunch is so, safe. So the mention of lunch and Augustine and hunger is making oh. me hungry. So before oh the beautiful goodness. demons come, I want to thank our two wonderful authors, Marina and John, for a fabulous conversation. Recall This Book is normally hosted by John Plotz, Elizabeth Ferry, and various Brandeis colleagues. Our music is by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, editing and production by Anil Trapathy, Matthew Schratz, and Mark DeLello. For this collaborative episode, we're very grateful to Robin Kelsey, Sarah Razor, and Steve Beal at Harvard and to the Mahindra Humanities Center, who also has a longer version of this event on their YouTube channel, along with various other events uh, hosted there. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, and suggestions for future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You may be interested in checking out past episodes, including topics like opiate addiction, Minimalism, Old and New Media, The History of Writing from Gilgamesh to Computer Coding with Martin Puchner, and an interview with Madeline Miller, author of Circe. Upcoming episodes will include a discussion about the comic novel with the amazing comic novelist Steve McCauley, 
conversation with living legend of science fiction Sam Delaney, and a discussion of animals, poetical and otherwise, with poet David Ferry and biologist E.O. Wilson. Thank you.